got a question to start with this morning. Who do you work for? Now, I'm not talking about whether you work for Greggs or Yorkshire Water, or whether you're retired or still at school. I went through a stage where everybody I seem to meet seems to work for Yorkshire Water. I don't know if you've had the same uh, situation. It's one of those things that always seems to come up. But really what I'm asking is, who do you serve? Who is the one that you live your life for? Now, it may sound like a daft question to ask. Because if you're a Christian here this morning, you'll probably know what the right answer is. God, of course. We serve God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we know that's the right answer, don't we? But is it our answer? Is it your answer? Really deep down. Would somebody from the outside looking in on your life be able to say, yes, they're serving God? Without a doubt, that is what they live their life for. They're serving God. Or would they come to another conclusion? Well, perhaps if you're not a believer here this morning, perhaps you'd say it openly, you know, I, I serve my family. I live for pleasure. I please myself. I work for the approval of others. There are many things in this world, aren't there, that are willing to be our master, our God, our idol. But in the end, we can only serve one. And as Jesus himself said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. In the end, there can only be one. Well, what we have in our passage this morning is two rival masters, two rival gods, two rival people that you can work for. You've got Pharaoh in chapter 5, and then you have the Lord, Yahweh, uh, and his servant Moses in chapter 6. And you can imagine the people after the events of chapters 3 and 4 being really excited. You know, God had appeared to Moses in a burning bush. He'd promised to deliver his people through Moses. He'd given Moses miracles to perform to convince the people to believe him. You can imagine the people outside as Moses goes in to speak to Pharaoh, you know, we have decided to follow Moses. You know, and that would be what they were thinking. That's what we want to do. We want to follow the Lord and his servant Moses. Egypt behind us, Canaan before us. You get the picture. I don't need to do the whole song. But that excitement is not going to last very long. For all their talk about wanting to serve God, there's many of them who deep down would still rather prefer to serve Pharaoh. So that's what we see in our first heading, serving Pharaoh. In the passage we had read to us before, Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh. That might sound like a pretty incredible thing, but it's not unheard of at this point in history. Even without Moses' royal connections, citizens were allowed to petition the king at this point, as the, uh, the, the foreman go on to do later on. Thus says the Lord... Say Moses and Aaron. That's the first time that phrase is used in scripture. But not the last. God has a message for Pharaoh. Let my people go. Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh has no intention of granting the requests of these Hebrew slaves. He's never heard of the Lord, Yahweh, the great I am. And if he's God of Israel, he's clearly not a very powerful one, is he? I mean, think about it from his perspective. This is the God of the enslaved people. He's got power over these people. If, he, if they do have a God, then he's a puny God in Pharaoh's mind. Who is 
this Lord that I should obey his voice, says Pharaoh. The Pharaohs consider themselves God, uh, incarnations of the God of the heavens, Horus. And in words that would no doubt haunt him for the rest of his days, he tells Moses, I do not know the Lord. Oh, but Pharaoh, you will. That's what's going to happen, isn't it? He believed the God of the Hebrews was below his contempt. Not worth knowing or heeding, but he will find out, won't he? He'll find out about this God. The refrain that will come back again and again throughout all the calamities we'll read about that follow. The purpose is that you may know that I am the Lord. That's what God is doing. He's revealing himself to the Israelites, to Pharaoh. But at this point, Pharaoh shows zero interest in their God. Instead, he calls them lazy, idle. The word in Hebrew also carries the idea of weakness. It's like the idea of being slack or feeble or weak or sluggish. You've got too much time on your hands. That's the problem. He's concerned that all this talk of freedom is taking the people away from their work. So if you give them more work, then they won't have time to think about freedom or festivals in the wilderness. When petitioned, he doesn't make their life easier. It actually makes their life harder. He demands that they go and gather their own straw to make the quota of bricks that he's demanding. He increases their burdens quite literally. Now I looked this week into why they use straw in bricks. I don't know about you, it's always sort of puzzled me. It doesn't seem a very sort of brick-like substance to use straw. It had two purposes. It binds, it sort of bound the clay together. It's sort of like the mesh that you put in concrete these days to sort of hold it all together. And also it made the bricks lighter and easier to carry. Because if it was solid sort of clay, they were actually really heavy. They were much bigger bricks than the ones that we have. And the, uh, the, the, uh, the straw would make it lighter. No straw, and you've just got solid lumps of hardened clay they'd have to carry around. Now there are uh, very old walls that they've uncovered in Egypt in the areas mentioned in chapter 1 that start with bricks made with straw, then move on to bricks mixed with rubbish to sort of make it a bit lighter, and then finish with bricks of pure clay on the top. It could be from this time, but it's really hard to tell. But it's interesting, isn't it, the way that we can see these things. Pharaoh increases their work, though, that's the point. They'll have to find their own straw, or whatever they can get their hands on to put into these bricks. More work to do, same amount of time to do it in. Pharaoh tells the Egyptian taskmasters and the Hebrew foreman that no straw will be given to them. And Pharaoh tells them that they need to work harder and not pay attention to lying words. Think about what he's saying there. What are the lying words that he's saying that they shouldn't listen to? They're none other than God's promises, are they, if you think about it? God's promises in Pharaoh's ears were lying words. So the taskmasters uh, won't listen. He's calling the Lord and Moses liars and they buy the lie, don't they? The taskmasters then speak of Pharaoh the way that Moses speaks of God. So verse 10, uh, same half of verse 10, thus says Pharaoh. We've only just had our first instance of thus says the Lord, and in the same chapter we get, thus says Pharaoh, I will give you no straw. They serve Pharaoh. They speak for Pharaoh. But theirs is not good news of rescue, but bad news of burden. We have two thus says it, if you like, 
in this passage. Thus says the Lord, and thus says Pharaoh. We can go with one or the other, and the two cannot coexist for very long. But Pharaoh's edict is a recipe for disaster. The people can't produce the same amount of bricks when they're not being given straw. But instead of reducing the amount, the, beat the, uh, the Egyptian taskmasters beat the foreman instead. So the foreman cry out to Pharaoh. You notice that in the opening chapters, the Hebrews cry out to the Lord. Now they're crying out to Pharaoh. Again, they treat him like God. Why do you treat your servants like this? Pharaoh's answer, you're lazy. Go back to work. That's what Pharaoh says to their demands. The foremen are upset, aren't they? And they know who to blame. Not Pharaoh, but Moses and Aaron. They invoke the Lord's name, but it's Pharaoh that they live to please. In fact, they stink to him, they say, and his servants. And that's the problem. Actually, they, they care more about what Pharaoh thinks than what the Lord thinks. But to be fair, if you look at Moses' response in 22 and 23, he doesn't do much better, does he? Just have a look at that with me again. Verses 22 and 23. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. It's not great, is it, for the leader of Israel to be speaking uh, like this? Moses accuses God of doing evil. Now that word's not quite as strong as it seems to be. It's the same word that's translated as trouble in verse 19. God has brought trouble to his people. And Moses is getting the flack. Why did you why did you send me? Was this some kind of trick? Was this some kind of punishment? You haven't rescued your people at all. Now things don't look great for serving Pharaoh in this chapter, do they? Who listens, who doesn't listen, sorry, to their cries? Who decrees labour rather than liberty? Who makes threats rather than promises? Who can only make life harder? But for Moses, actually, he's finding quite hard serving the Lord, isn't he? Moses' life has certainly got harder since the Lord called him. And people's words here can bite much more painfully than sheep's mouths that he was used to in the wilderness. But God is going to reassure Moses and us that serving the Lord, despite its difficulties, is better by far. And so our second point, serving the Lord, chapter 6. Have a look with me again at verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. We're going to see in this chapter that serving the Lord versus serving Pharaoh is not a close contest. God and Pharaoh are in different leagues altogether when it comes to serving them. We've seen what Pharaoh has done to God's people, how he's turned the people against themselves. Well, now it's time to see what God will do to Pharaoh. Now, you might be thinking at this point, you'll talk about plagues. You know, this is what I will do. I will smite Pharaoh. I will plague Egypt. I'll do a Will Smith on Pharaoh. Pop culture reference. But no. What will Moses do to Pharaoh? Well, he's going to get Pharaoh to send his people out of Egypt. He's going to get Pharaoh to do it. Pharaoh will choose to let the people go. Pharaoh will want the people to leave. 
And Pharaoh will drive the people out with a strong hand. That's what God's going to do. So strong and powerful and utterly amazing is our God. There's going to be no armed uprising. There's going to be no war. But instead, Pharaoh himself, their greatest enemy, will tell them to go. That's what God is going to do. Now there's a lot of talk about Pharaoh's will, how God hardens his heart. But when they leave, that won't be against Pharaoh's will. Pharaoh will want them to go. That's what he wants. Now, fickle Pharaoh will change his mind, spoiler alert, if you don't know the story. But in the first place, he will actually want them to leave. Not a single sword will need to be raised, and the people will go with his blessing and the riches of the Egyptians. How great is our God that he will bring about that for these people? And Moses needs to know this. Moses needs to remember who his God is. Serving the Lord is not like serving a company that has rivals, you know, oh, we might get bought out, or oh, we might go out of business. God, in the greater scheme of things, has no rivals. There is no one in any real sense who can challenge him or match him. Yet again, we will see God using the very desires and actions of the most powerful people in the world to bring about his own purposes. So there is zero chance of God losing this fight. Because actually, his opponents serve him too. In a different way, but they are not in control of the action. However big and powerful they might seem, actually God is in control of the action. And Moses here is in a very privileged position. God is evoking his his conscious cooperation in this plan. God could do this all without Moses' help, couldn't he? But God is not just interested in outcomes. He's interested in personal, real relationship. Now, I wish there was a better word than relationship. Because being in a relationship in our culture means being boyfriend and girlfriend, doesn't it? That's generally how people use it. It's always romantic, and it's usually something less than marriage. But God defines what he means by his relationship in verses 2 to 8 of chapter 6. God has let them know his name, he says. Do you see that? Verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. God has let them know his name. And that implies intimacy. So John 10 verse 3, to him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, this is Jesus, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. You ever thought how wonderful it is that God knows your name? It's pretty incredible, isn't it? But have you ever realised that God has told you his? God's actually given you his name. I remember when I was at school, I know some of you guys are still at school at this point because we've got the heroes in. Uh, I don't know if it's still the same at your school, but at my school we didn't get to know the, the teacher's first names. So it was always Mr. Binks, or you know, Mrs. Rhodes, or something like that. It was always, you never got to know the teacher's first name. But my mum was friends with one of the teachers, so I got to know the teacher's first name. And I could call him John. When he went, I still called him Mr. Binks. Because uh, you just can't get out of that mindset. I still call him Mr. Binks, I think. Um, even though you know, it's many years later. But there's that intimacy, isn't there? That, that, that's there when you know somebody's name. It also implies access. 
when I was doing teacher training, they taught us that names are power. And I remember when I was doing teacher training in Blackpool, uh, I, I was given a sort of uh, seating plan for the class, and I memorised all the names of every seat. So I'd never seen these kids before, but memorised the name of every seat. They went into the class uh, as this sort of, you know, first day teacher, didn't know anything. And one of the kids sort of put their hand up, and I was like, yes, Jacob? And the kids were absolutely terrified. He's like, he knows our names. He knows we can't get away with anything now. He knows our names. Names have power, don't they? When somebody shouts your name, you turn your head. I've got the unfortunate thing that my, my name is Chris, obviously, uh, but it's very short and, and quite close to things like Miss or Lewis or things like that. So in our house, it's always really tricky. You know, sort of turning your head uh, all the time. But names get your attention. Names are powerful. You get this idea in the New Testament too. So in Revelation 19, 11 and 12, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on the white horse is faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. Now, Revelation is quite complicated, isn't it? But the idea there that he has a name that nobody else knows is the idea that he's got power, he's got authority, because no one else knows his name. No one else can call his name. If you have a name, it can get you access and attention. It's like having somebody's personal mobile number or their email address. Imagine if an important person came to you and gave, them, gave you their personal mobile number and said, call me anytime. That's what God is doing here. He's given them his name. Now, there's a big debate over what God means, that the patriarchs, Abraham, etc., did not know his name. God's name is used over a hundred times in Genesis. Though it's Moses writing it, and, you know, he knew God's name. But it's there on the lips of Adam, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Lot, Abraham's servant, Laban, Isaac, Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. So what's more likely meant here is that they didn't really know the meaning of his name, the character of God, as Moses is finding it out. They didn't understand God in the same way. They knew the Lord in part, but God is finding out, so Moses is finding out the true meaning of his name, the mighty one who rescues his people, the gracious and compassionate one. God is inviting him to know him in a deeper way. What does it mean for us to know the Lord? He tells us in verses seven onwards. He says, I am the I am. That's the Lord. I will be what I will be, as we saw last week. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. And you shall know that the I am is your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you out of the land, uh, into the land, sorry, that I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you a possession. I am the I am, and I will be what I will be. What he's showing there is God will be their rescuer. God will be their redeemer. But it's more than that. Do you notice verse 7? I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. It almost sounds a bit like a wedding, doesn't it? 
Do you, the great I am, take this people to be your people? And the Lord is saying, I do. He will take them to be his own people. He will be their God. So this is not just a relationship. This is something deeper, unbreakable, permanent, lasting. It's a covenantal relationship. That's mentioned in verse 5. There's not really a non-jargony phrase for it, really. It's like a contract, but it's more personal. It's based on promises, pledges, oaths. It was usually signed in blood, so to speak, as an animal would be killed when the covenant was made. Their relationship would be that solid. He's bound himself to his people. So how could he abandon his people to slavery when he's bound himself to them? How could he not keep his promises to Abraham to bring them into the promised land? They are his people. He is their God. He will do this. And Moses needs that reminder. To be serving the Lord is to be on the side of the God who cares, who listens, who acts for our good. That's what he's saying. Who's bound himself to his people. How different from serving Pharaoh who doesn't care, who doesn't listen and acts for our destruction. The people, unfortunately, don't see it, though. But Moses speaks to them in verse 9 and tells them what's happened, but the people won't listen. The phrase there is that they have a broken spirit, or literally shortness of spirit. It could also mean shortness of breath. Uh, Spirit and breath are the same word in Hebrew. So one translation puts it, they were completely exhausted, so they couldn't listen. Now both were no doubt true. And sometimes it's hard to hear God's promises when we're exhausted, isn't it? When our spirit's broken. We know deep down it's what we need to hear. But it can be hard at those times. It certainly was for the Israelites. The phrase there can also mean impatience. And it does seem that they thought that there would be an instant rescue. What was actually going on, it was going to take some time. And again, we find that hard, don't we? For all that we complain about instant coffee and instant noodles, actually we quite like things that are instant, don't we? I mean, just look what happens when we have to wait for something. That's when we find out how impatient we are, isn't it? But Pharaoh's plan to break them here seems to be working. They're getting impatient. They're exhausted. But he doesn't know who he's dealing with. In fact, he's told us he doesn't know who he's dealing with. I do not know the Lord. Actually, all is going to plan. But Moses doesn't understand. He thinks he's failed again. How is Pharaoh going to listen to me when my own people won't listen to me? I told you I was no good at speaking, God. Now, it's hard to tell here whether Moses is genuinely sad about this or he's just trying to get out of the job again. He says, I have uncircumcised lips. Now, lack of circumcision was a problem in chapter 4. Maybe he thinks that, you know, having uncircumcised lips will will sort of get him out of the job. But God is not giving up on Moses. He's got the right man for the job, even if the man doesn't think that he's the right man. This is a plan that's hundreds, thousands of years in the making. The passage takes us back in a genealogy to Jacob, to Reuben, to Simeon, to Levi. The three firstborn. But also Simeon, Levi and Jacob appear in Genesis 34. Levi and Simeon defeat the Hivites who attack their sister Dina by uh, getting uh, the guys to go circumcise themselves and then killing them while they're still recovering. 
Jacob says this to those sons. See if you can spot the parallels with our passage, Genesis 34, verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves together against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Jacob sounds a lot there like the foreman, doesn't he? But they're not small numbers now in Egypt. They're great in number, and the Hivites and the Canaanites will not destroy them. It will be the other way round. The genealogy also introduces us to some of the main characters and where they come from for the story ahead. And God will rescue his people, even with Moses with his uncircumcised lips. Now it's a big story, isn't it? There are plenty of ways that we can translate this to our experience, and we should do. It's not just supposed to be a story. It's there for our good and for our growth. So finally, and more briefly, serving Christ. There are many ways that we could go as we look to apply this, aren't there? The relationship that we share, the covenant that we have, the way that we can be hurt in church by friendly fire, so to speak. Perhaps one of the most striking things, though, is the way that the New Testament picks up this promise of freedom from slavery that God promises here. Paul writes in Romans about us being slaves, but slaves to sin, who have been set free by Christ's sacrifice. His blood is the basis of the new covenant, and we have been set free in that covenant. And since we have been set free from sin, we should no longer serve sin, but serve God instead. We've been set free to serve, not to sin. So Paul writes in Romans 6, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at those times from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. The fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. We used to serve sin. And like Pharaoh, sin is a hard taskmaster. It makes us miserable. And in the end, all it can deliver to us as a reward is more slavery and death. But Christ has set us free from sin so that we can serve the living God. We are saved to serve. Let my people go that they may worship me, that they may serve me. We are now slaves to God, speaking in Paul's terms. We belong to him. We serve him. Which makes us more and more holy and brings us to our promised land, eternal life with God forever. Those two ends couldn't be more different, could they? Not even worth comparing. And yet... So often we slip back into serving sin, and Pharaoh if you like, than serving God. We go back to the things that lead to death, rather than the things that lead to life. We voluntarily go back to the service of sin, rather than to God. That's why Paul has to say in the verse before in Romans, For just just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. We need to apply our freedom to our lives, not falling back into old patterns and old ways, fighting sin rather than serving sin. Problem is, though, is it's easier, isn't it, not to fight. We can feel like those foremen, just better to accept it, because fighting just makes things more difficult, just makes things harder. Moses found that too, didn't he? 
when he did what God wanted, things didn't get easier, they got harder. But God wants us to be free, free from sin and free to serve the living God. So we need to do what Paul says, present our bodies, our day-to-day lives to God in service to him. We need to remember that while service to Christ isn't always easy and plain sailing, service to sin, like service to Pharaoh, brings misery and its ends death. Sin can never give us freedom or pleasure that it promises. Service to anything other than Christ cannot satisfy. So we need to have Christ as our master. We need to serve him, live for him, work for him, if you like. Only then will we have true freedom, which is the freedom of the sons of God. So let's pray that God would give us the strength to serve Christ with all our strength. Let's pray. Father God, we're so sorry that so often, like the Bourbon in our passage, we go back to serving Pharaoh. We go back to serving sin rather than serving you. Father, we pray that you would forgive us. And help us to serve you with all our strength, with all our soul, with all our breath. Father, help us to live for you alone in all that we do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.